Good morning, people of God. Here's another day. This is Apostle Shirley Evans this morning with a new gadget. So hope I can get this message to you. Today being September 24th, 2020. And it's 8.52 a.m. We will bless the Lord at all times. His praises shall continually be in my mouth. Asking God to revive us again this morning. I have a prophetic word, which is a scripture from the Holy Spirit, also prophetic songs as he leads me. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine glory. Revive us again. We praise thee, O God. For thy spirit of light, who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. All glory and praise. To the Lamb that was slain, who was born all our sins and hath cleansed every stain. Hallelujah, thine glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine glory. Revive us again. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May its soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine glory. Revive us again. Hallelujah, thine glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. We need reviving to be revived. Father in heaven, how we love you. We lift your name in all the earth. May your kingdom be established in our praises. As your people declare your mighty works, blessed be the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, who reigns forever.
magnify your name today oh magnify the Lord for he is worthy to be praised oh magnify the Lord for he is worthy to be praised Hosanna Blessed be the rock and may the God of my salvation be exalted. Hosanna. Blessed be the rock and may the God of my salvation be exalted. I will call upon the Lord. For he is worthy to be praised. I will call upon the Lord. For he is worthy to be praised. Hosanna. Blessed be the rock and may God of my salvation be exalted. Hosanna, blessed be the rock, and may the God of my salvation be exalted. May the God of our salvation be exalted today. Savior, like a shepherd lead us, much we need thy tender care in thy pleasant pastures feed us for our use thy folds prepare blessed jesus blessed jesus thou hast bought us thine we are blessed jesus blessed jesus thou hast bought us thine we are we are thine thou though befriend us be the God in of our way, keep thy flock from sin, defend us, seek us when we go astray. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, hear, oh, hear us when we pray. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, 
hear, oh, hear us when we pray. So, Father, this morning, as I'm about to bring this word, I pray that the hearers of this word today, or, or whichever day they receive it, I pray that the peace of God that passes all understanding will be guarding their hearts and mind. Continue to show them and tell them that you love them and, and also help them to accept your love. Guide us this day and Father, let me decrease and let you increase as you give us this message today. And yes, we are back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 16. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 16 speaks on about the Sermon on the Mount. And 5, 1 to 16. 1 to 12 speaks about the Beatitudes, which means to think like Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16 speaks about the salt and the light. So we'll see how far we'll go today. But I'll read the scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 12 says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 12, the beatitude, which means to think like Christ. So we're going to go from verse 1 to 2. Verse 1 to 2 says... And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Verse 3 to 5, I'll repeat again, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what he was saying. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. He was speaking, and they were listening. He's still speaking. Let us listen. Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus gave it on a hillside near Capernaum. This sermon probably covered several days of preaching. In it, Jesus proclaimed his attitude toward the law, position, authority, and money are not important in his kingdom. What matters is faithful obedience from the heart. The Sermon on the Mount challenged the proud and legalistic religious leaders of the day. It called them back to the messages of the Old Testament prophets who, like Jesus, taught that heartfelt obedience is more important than legalistic observance. The same thing is happening today. Enormous crowds were following Jesus. He was the talk of the town and everyone wanted to see him. The disciples who were the closest associates of this popular man were certainly tempted to feel important. They, they was feeling important because here they are with this important man, Jesus. They, they felt important, they felt proud, and they felt possessive. Being with Jesus gave them not only prestige, but also opportunity for receiving money and power. And you know, Jesus was not all about that. So I'm sure he rebuked them. The crowds were gathered once again, but before speaking to them, that is, before speaking to the crowds, Jesus pulled his disciples aside and warned them about the temptations they would face as his associates. I remember sometime years ago, uh, there was a time that I had praise and worship at my house in my living room, which spilled over to the dining room. And most of them, they were young people, a few old people. And the praise and worship would go on until after 12 o'clock and nobody wanted to go home. It was just praise and worship, no big music. The music was coming out of our mouths and praises. And a woman came one night, an elderly woman, and she goes in the kitchen and gets a, a sauce or a plate and comes and said, wait, we have to take up an offering. And the Lord had me to rebuke and said, no, 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 no. Uh -uh. My God supplies my need. Don't do that. Do not do that. So you see, here comes Jesus had to speak to his disciples and say, no, nah, nah, don't even try that. As I said, the crowds were gathering once again, but before speaking to the crowds, Jesus pulled his disciples aside and warned them about the temptations they would face as his associates. Don't expect fame and fortune, he was telling them. Jesus was saying, but expect mourning, hunger, and persecution. See, when we come to Jesus, we figure, oh, we're going to be rich and all that. Well, um, the scripture said, Beloved, I wish, wish upon, 
above, above all that you prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospered. When your soul prospers, everything around you prospers. Every need is met by your heavenly father. Jesus was saying, expect mourning, hunger, and persecution. Nevertheless, Jesus assured his disciples they would be rewarded, but perhaps not in this life. There may be times when following Jesus will bring us great popularity. If we don't live by Jesus' words in this sermon, we will find ourselves using God's message only to promote our personal interests. Jesus began his sermon with words that seem to contradict each other. But God's way of living usually contradicts the world's. If you're a friend of the world, then you're not a friend of God. If you want to live for God, you must be ready to say and do what seems strange to the world. You must be willing to give when others take. You must be willing to love when others hate. You must be willing to help when others abuse. By giving up your own rights in order to serve others, you will one day receive everything God has in store for you. There are at least four ways to understand the Beatitudes. One, they are a code of ethics for the disciples, course and us, and a standard of conduct for all believers. They contrast kingdom values that is kingdom values, what is eternal, with worldly values, in other words, what is temporary. They contrast the superficial faith of the Pharisees with the real faith Christ wants. They show how the Old Testament expectations will be fulfilled in the new kingdom. These beatitudes are not multiple choice. Pick what you like and leave the rest? No. They must be taken as a whole. They describe what we should be like as Christ's followers. Each beatitude tells how to be blessed. Blessed means more than happiness. It implies the fortunate or inevitable state of those who are in God's kingdom. The Beatitudes don't promise laughter, pleasure, or earthly prosperity. To Jesus, blessed means the experience of hope and joy, independent of outward circumstances. You could be in a storm, raging, but yet you have joy. You have peace because he's with you in the storm. To find hope and joy, the deepest form of happiness, follow Jesus no matter what the cost. Can I say that again? To find hope and joy, the deepest form of happiness, follow Jesus no matter what the cost.
with Jesus, with his announcement that the kingdom was near. That's what he spoke in, 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 in chapter 4, verse 17. He was telling them the kingdom was near. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, it's near. People were naturally asking, how do I qualify to be in God's kingdom? Jesus said that God's kingdom is organized differently from worldly kingdoms. In the kingdom of heaven, wealth and power and authority are unimportant. Can I say that again? In the kingdom of heaven, wealth and power and authority are unimportant. Kingdom people seek different blessings and benefits, and they have different attitudes. Are your attitudes a carbon coffee of the world's selfishness? Can I say that again? Are your attitudes a carbon copy of the world's selfishness, pride, and lust for power? Or do they reflect the humility and self-service of Jesus, your king? Do you know even in the church settings, people fight for power? It's so sad. Verse 11 and 12 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. A lot of people draw back because they don't want to take the persecution. Jesus said to rejoice when we're persecuted. Persecution can be good because it takes our eyes off earthly rewards. It strips away superficial belief. It strengthens the faith of those who endure. And our attitude through it serves as an example to others who follow. We can be comforted to know that God's greatest prophets were persecuted. Take, for instance, Elijah was, Jeremiah was, Daniel was. The fact that we are being persecuted proves that we have been faithful. Faithless people would be unnoticed. Faithless people would be unnoticed. In the future, God will reward the faithful by receiving them into his eternal kingdom where there is no more persecution. Verse 13 says, ye are the salt, ye are the salt of the earth. I'm going to go there. Chapter 5, verse 13 to 16 says, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If a seasoning 
has no flavor. It has no value. Have you ever eaten bland food with no seasoning, no taste? If a seasoning has no flavor, it has no value. If Christians make no effort to affect the world around them, they are of little value to God. If we are too much like the world, we are worthless. Christians should not blend in with everyone else. Instead, we should affect others positively, just as seasoning brings out the best flavor in food. Can you hide a city that is sitting on top of a hill? I am, my house is like in a valley and, the, and another house is up there on the hill. In the night, you can see all the lights in my yard. But the house that is up on the hill, it is very much noticeable. All the lights are on. You can see it. Can you hide a city that is sitting on top of a hill? Its light at night can be seen for miles. If we live for Christ, we will glow like lights, showing others what Christ is like. We hide our light by being quiet when we should speak. We hide our lights by going along with the crowd. We hide our lights by denying the light. We hide our light by letting sin dim our light. We hide our light by not explaining our light to others. We hide our light by ignoring the needs of others. Be it a beacon of truth. Don't shut your light off from the rest of the world. And I'm going to another part of the scripture, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, teaching about the law. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is him teaching about the law. God's moral and ceremonial laws were given to help people love God with all their hearts and minds. Throughout Israel's history, however, these laws had been often misquoted and misapplied. By Jesus' time, Religious leaders had turned the laws into a confusing mass of rules. That's what's happening today. They still have all these rules and regulations. They turn it into confusion. When Jesus talked about a new way to understand God's law, he was actually trying to bring people back 
to its original purpose. Jesus did not speak against the law itself, but against the abuses and excesses to which it had been subjected. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, John 1 and 17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not come to abolish the law, does that mean all the Old Testament laws still apply to us today? In the Old Testament, there were three categories of law, ceremonial, civil, and moral. The ceremonial law related specifically to Israel's worship. Its primary purpose was to point forward to Jesus Christ. These laws, therefore, were no longer necessary after Jesus' death and resurrection. While we are no longer bound by ceremonial laws, the principles behind them to worship and love a holy God still apply. Jesus was often accused by the Pharisees of violating ceremonial law. The civil law applied to daily living in Israel. Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy chapter 24, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 10 and 11 declares, When thou dost lend thy brother anything, thou shalt not go into his house to fetch his pledge. Thou shalt, not, uh, thou shalt stand abroad, and the man to whom thou dost lend shall bring out the pledge abroad unto thee. All of these laws. The civil law applied to daily living in Israel, as I just read Deuteronomy 24, 10 and 11. That was an example. Because modern society and culture are so radically different from that time and setting. <clears throat> All of these guidelines cannot be followed specifically, but the principles behind the commands are timeless and should guide our conduct. Jesus demonstrated these principles by example. The moral law, such as the Ten Commandments, is the direct command of God, and it requires strict obedience Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. I'll go there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 says, Thou shalt not kill. That's an example. The moral law reveals the nature and will of God, and it still applies today. Jesus obeyed the moral law completely. Jesus obeyed the moral law completely. Some of those in the crowd were experts at telling others what to do, 
but they missed the central point of God's laws themselves. Jesus made it clear, however, that obeying God's law is more important than explaining it. It's much easier to study God's laws and tell others to obey them than to put them into practice. How are you doing at obeying God yourself? The Pharisees were exacting and scrupulous in their attempts to follow their laws. So how could Jesus reasonably call us to a greater righteousness than theirs? The Pharisees' weakness was that they were content to obey the laws outwardly without allowing God to change their hearts or their attitudes. Jesus was saying, therefore, that the quality of our goodness should be greater than that of the Pharisees. They looked pious, but they were far from the kingdom of God. God judges our hearts as well as our deeds, for it is in the heart that our real allegiance lies. Be just as concerned about your attitudes that people don't see as about your actions that are seen by all. Be just as concerned about your attitudes that people don't see as about your actions that are seen by all. Jesus was saying that his listeners need a different kind of righteousness altogether. They need love and obedience. Law. Love and obedience. That's it. They need love and obedience. Not just a more intense version of the Pharisees' religious legal compliance. Our righteousness must come from what God does in us, not what we can do by ourselves. We are to be God-centered, not self-centered. Be based on reverence for God, not approval from people. And go beyond keeping the law to living by the principles behind the law. Should we go a little further this morning? Yes. We're going to talk about anger. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first to be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver to thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the utmost farthing. That's Jesus teaching about anger. And I just read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 
to 26. When Jesus said, but I tell you, he was not doing away with the law or adding his own beliefs. Rather, he was giving a fuller understanding of why God made that law in the first place. For example, Moses said, you shall not murder. Jesus taught that we should not even become angry enough to murder. So it starts in your mind, in your thoughts. For then we have already committed murder in our heart. The Pharisees read this law and, not having literally murdered anyone, felt righteous. Yet they were angry enough with Jesus that they would soon plot his death. Though they would not do the dirty work themselves. We miss the intent of God's word when we read his rules for living without trying to understand why he made them. When do you keep God's rules but close your eyes to his intent? Killing is a terrible sin, but anger is a great sin too because it also violates God's command of love. Anger in this case refers to a seething, brooding bitterness against someone, and that's what was in the Pharisees' mind against Jesus. It is a dangerous emotion that always threatens to leap out of control, leading to violence, emotional hurt, increased mental stress, and spiritual damage. Anger keeps us from developing a spirit pleasing to God. You hear him say, be angry and sin not. Have you ever been proud that you didn't strike out and say what was really on your mind? Self-control is good. I often tell people, listen, when you're real angry and you think you're about to say something that is not godly, then under your breath, say this 23rd time or open your mouth and say it and calm yourself down. Self-control is good. But Christ wants us to practice thought control as well. Can I say that again? Self-control is good, but Christ wants us to practice thought control as well. Jesus said that we will be held accountable even for our attitudes. Broken relationships can hinder our relationship with God. If you have a problem or grievance with a friend, we should resolve the problem as soon as possible. Don't wait till tomorrow because it's going to grow in your mind and your thought. We are hypocrites if we claim to love God while we hate others. Our attitudes towards others reflect our relationship with God. First John chapter 4 verse 20. First John chapter 4 verse 20 declares, If a man say, I love God, and hated his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he had seen, how can he love God whom he had not seen? How? He can't. So, we have to love from our heart truth 
you see a brother how could you hate your brother and say you love god in jesus's day someone who couldn't pay a debt was thrown into prison that's amazing eh? you imagine the prison they'd have to build 10 more prisons in nassau <laughs> because in this day it would be thrown into prisons in nassau we need 10 more prisons in Jesus' day, someone who couldn't pay a debt was thrown into prison until the debt was paid. Unless someone came to pay the debt for the prisoner, he or she would probably die there. Oh, man. Thank God we're not living in that day. Because we'd need more funeral homes for the people who'd be thrown in prison and can't pay the debt and they would die there. It is practical advice to resolve our differences with our enemies before their anger causes more trouble. Proverbs chapter 25. I'll go there. Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs 25, where, what's the scripture now? Verse 8 to 10 says, Go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof. When thy neighbor hath put thee to shame, Debate thy course with thy neighbor himself and discover not a secret to another. Lest he that hear it, it put thee to shame, and thine infamy turn not away. You may not get into a disagreement that takes you to court, but even small conflicts Mend more easily if you try to make peace right away. In a broader sense, these verses advise us to get things right with our brothers and sisters before we have to stand before God. And so what I did is I went all the way to sin begins in the heart. That's where I'm going. Sin begins in the heart. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee, that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. That's him teaching about how sin begins in our heart. That's um, verse 27 to 
verse 30. The Old Testament law said that it is wrong for a person to have sex with someone other than his or her spouse. But Jesus said that the desire to have sex with someone other than your spouse is mental adultery and thus sin. Jesus emphasized that if the act is wrong, then so is the intention. To be faithful to your spouse with your body, but not your mind, is to break the trust so vital to a strong marriage. Jesus is not condemning natural interest in the opposite sex or even healthy sexual desire, but the deliberate and repeated filling of one's mind with fantasies that would be evil if acted out. I said to someone the other day, your body could be there with your husband, but your mind is on the other side of town. You need to call your mind back, focus, because you could have all these fantasies going off in your mind. It's evil. Something that if lustful thoughts are sin, why shouldn't a person go ahead and do the lustful actions too? Acting out sinful desires is harmful in several ways. It causes people to excuse sin rather than to stop sinning. It destroys marriages. It is deliberate rebellion against God's word. It always hurts someone else in addition to the sinner. Sinful action is more dangerous than sinful desire. Sinful action is more dangerous than sinful desire. When you yield to the temptation, that's a sin. And that is why desire should not be acted out. Nevertheless, sinful desire is just as damaging to righteousness. Left unchecked, wrong desires will result in wrong actions and turn people away from God. When Jesus said to get rid of when Jesus said to get rid of your hand or your eye, he wasn't saying to cut it off or pluck it out. He was speaking figuratively. He didn't mean literally to gouge out your eye. Because even a blind person can lust, because that's in the heart. But if they were the only choice, it would be better to go into heaven with one eye or a hand than to go to hell with, no, with, with, with two. We sometimes tolerate sins in our lives that, left unchecked, could eventually destroy us. It is better to experience the pain of removal, getting rid of a bad habit or something we treasure, for instance, than to allow the sin to bring judgment and condemnation. Let us examine our life for anything that causes us to sin and take every necessary action to remove it. And so, Father, this morning, we are going to stop here. Or should I go a little further? I'll go right to divorce. He was teaching about divorce. 
He said, it had been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causing her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her, that is divorce, committed adultery. Well, this is a topic. Divorce is as hurtful and destructive today as in Jesus' day. God intends marriage to be a lifetime commitment. When entering into marriage, people should never consider divorce an option. I'll go to Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 and let you hear what it says. Genesis 2 and 24 says, Genesis 2 and 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. When entering into marriage, people should never consider divorce an option for solving problems or way out of a relationship that seems dead. In these verses, Jesus is also attacking those who purposefully abuse the marriage contract, using divorce to satisfy their lustful desire to marry someone else. Are your actions today helping your marriage grow? Grow stronger? Or are you tearing it apart? Jesus said that divorce is not permissible except for unfaithfulness. This does not mean that divorce should automatically occur when a spouse commits adultery. The word translated unfaithfulness implies a sexually immoral lifestyle, not a confessed and repented act of adultery. Those who discover their, that their partner has been unfaithful should first make every effort to forgive, reconcile, and restore their relationship. We are always to look for reasons to restore the marriage relationship rather than for excuses to leave it. And so, there are times, I'm still touching on the marriage because there are times when we do get married, but we didn't wait on God. We didn't pray and wait. And so, a lot of these marriage that are put together was not a God put together. And God does not want us to be in a marriage where the man is going to be abusing us night and day, beating us almost to death, being in the hospital for weeks because of the abuse. And people are going to say, stay in it. No, some of us got married to the devil. When we find ourselves being married to the devil, because the devil comes to steal, to kill and destroy, you have to pray and ask God, God, was this you? Or was this the devil? 
And if you continue giving your life to totally surrender to God, he will show you, you got married. It was not my will. You choose that. And if you continue to pray, God will release, release, release you from that because you did it ignorantly. Why do I minister to so much battered and abused women? Because I was one of those women who got married very early in life, ignorant of marriage. Meet the first person, marry them. And from day one, I was a battered and abused wife for 14 years until God released me out of that. That's how I learned that some of us, the devil married us. But thank God for Jesus who came and rescued us and made us whole again. Make me whole. Make me whole. Please restore my soul and make me whole. Here's my heart. Here's my soul. Please restore my soul and make me whole. And let me say this. Marriage is honorable. Marriage is ordained by God. And God, marriage is what God wants. Not a separation, a married life under God, pleasing God. So I don't want you to think that I have anything against marriage. No. Because Jesus had made me whole. So I can go speak to battered and abused women to tell them, I know a man, his name is Jesus, who can make you whole, restore you, and you get in oneness with him, and you wait on God because he can bring you God in man, made manifest. He can bring you a man in this earth who are equally yoked with you, who is going to love you like Christ loved the church. I love you, and until tomorrow, we never rang the bell, but the bell has been rung. I pray that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind. I pray that his mercy and his grace overshadow you. I love you, I love you, and God bless you.